0: Emil, my trusted friend, we've known each other since we were nine or ten, together we climbed hills and trees, learned of love and ABCs, skinned our hearts and skinned our knees, But us do a meal. it's hard to die. Good afternoon. You're tuned in to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Colson Whitehead. I'd like to thank you for joining us. Colson Whitehead was has been the pop critic for the Village Voice. Um, wrote about books, music, TV. Um, his writing has appeared in the New York Times, the New York Magazine, Granta, Harper's Salon, and other places. He's also the recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship, um, affectionately known as, or dubbed as the Genius Award, and a Whiting Award. His first novel, *The Intuitionist*, was the Quality Paperback Book Club's New Voices Award pick. It was also a finalist for a Penn Hemingway Award. His second novel, John Henry Days, was a finalist for the Pulitzer. His collection of essays, The Colossus of New York, has also been widely celebrated, and today we'll be talking about, and he'll be reading from, his most recent novel, Apex Hides the Hurt. I'd like to welcome you, Colson Whitehead. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Howdy. Thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you here on a nice, sunny, warm, (laughs) it's finally spring kind of day.
1: No, very (laughs) appreciated. In New York, it's still about 10 10 degrees colder, so it's very nice to Break out the short sleeves. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I guess we have the lake effect <laughs> or something. <laughs> it's either really cold or really hot faster. Um, well, we'll start out the show by having you um, read for us a little bit. That's what we usually do. And um, if you'll just sort of tell us a little bit, give us a, a frame for Apex Hides the Hurt, and then if you'll you'll read, that would be lovely.
1: Okay. The protagonist of Apex is a nomenclature consultant, a corporate namer, he comes up with names of products like Nike, Swoosh, Prozac, and um, at the start of the book, he gets hired to name a town in the, in the Midwest. Um, when we find him, he, he's had an accident of unknown origin, um, and he's in his room uh, watching TV, and that's what, as I often do, and this is where we pick him up. He was watching an old black-and-white movie on the television, the kind of flick where nothing happened unless it happened to strings. Every facial twitch had its own score. Every smile ate up two-and-a-half pages of sheet music. Every little thing walked around with this heavy freight of meaning. In his job, which was his past, present, and future job, even though he suffered a misfortune, he generally tried to to make things more compact, squeeze down the salient qualities into a convenient package. A smile was shorthand for a bunch of emotion. And here in this old movie, they didn't trust that you would know the meaning of a smile, so so they had to go and get an orchestra. So that's what he was thinking thinking about when the phone rang, wasted rented tuxes.
0: Wonderful. Thank you very much. Now, in various reviews all over the... um, just across the board, there are adjectives attached to the book. Um, Other than novel, we get parable, allegory, social realism, um, fabulous satire. Did you set out to write a particular kind of species than a novel when you set out to write this book? Well, I mean,
1: I think I definitely wanted to make it a little more straightforwardly comic than my previous books, so I guess satire, that's perfectly fine. Um, I'm poking fun at pop culture and marketing, so I guess satire seems like a fine word. And growing up, I read a lot of science fiction and um, horror stories and fantastic literature. i when I started reading, you know, so-called real books. Um, I started gravitating toward people like Borges and Garcia Marquez. So that kind of fantastic um, uh, sense of literature is in there, and I guess that's where you get parable and fabulist. Um, all those kind of words, um, I hear so often that they, uh, they sort of lost meaning, like irony or postmodern. So I generally see them now as just sort of um, placeholder words for a certain kind of take on the world.
0: Yeah, which is a good thing to talk about if we're talking about this book, the placeholder names. Um, if you then had to sort of come up with, if you were the nomenclature um, nomenclature consultant for Apex Hides the Hurt, would you come up with one, or is that sort of what um, someone else does and and puts it in a box? Did you? How did you? What was the seed for this particular book?
1: Well, I mean, I guess the first part um, I would just call it a short comic novel. Um, my last book, John Hemmerdays, was. Kind of, kind of long, and I started this about six years ago, right after I finished John Henry. So I knew I wanted to do something that was a lot shorter, followed one character instead of, you know, um, the cavalcade of various stars I had in John Henry. Um, in terms of the genesis of the book, um, about eight or nine years ago, I read an article in the New York Times Magazine about the naming of Prozac and pharmaceutical naming and how they try and find the right prefix, suffix, a uh, combination of syllables that will make the product fly off the shelves. And I thought, um, I guess because I was writing The Intuitionist, which talks about elevator inspectors, I was still in a kind of weird job, isn't that interesting kind of mode. And I thought, oh, uh, corporate name, that's a really interesting job. And I sort of thought about it and put it on the back burner. And because I, I'm a New Yorker and I, I write about cities a lot in, in The Intuitionist and... Uh, the book about New York, uh, The Colossus. Um, I think a lot about cities, and I was thinking about street names. Um, I walked down Hoyt or Skirmahorn in downtown Brooklyn, and at one point these guys were famous um, captains of industry or famous men about town, and they were honored with a street. Um, But of course now I just know them as an intersection, you know, uh, something I pass from here to there. And so I was thinking about, Who gets their names on the streets and who decides that and what happens to these people 200 200 years later um, when we no, no longer know who they are? And I'm not sure exactly how, but I just put these two ideas about corporate naming and city naming into one sort of idea.
0: And thus, thus was born. And was born. It was like yeah, <laughs> two great
1: tastes go together.
0: <laughs> there uh, we are. <laughs> yeah. Now, this book is set in a town in the Midwest. Predominantly, there's there are sort of moments when we're in the nomenclature consultant who will remain nameless. Yes. Um, in his in his apartment, and flashing back to his his life. Um, away from this town that he's gone to name, but I'm wondering, since you, you are from New York and have spent m- most of your life there, you had a little stint up in Cambridge, um, I understand, but um, where, did you go to the Midwest and, and or to small towns and do a little research, or how did you figure out how you were going to get to the essence of what this town would be? In order to
1: well, I mean, um, you know, with some books, I end up doing a lot of research. Um, uh, if, it, if there's a lot of historical... Facts or real life people in it I you know try to find out who they are, um so I can get it right with this book. I did you know very little research, a few articles, um and then this sort of made up the culture of of naming consultants, and in terms of the town, you know I, I really had to invent the history so I could address certain issues I wanted to address, and you can't really you know um, I guess deform reality reality that much that you can just take an existing town and sort of bend it to your will in the way i wanted to so i ended up just sort of having a nameless place in the midwest where i could build a town from start to finish the present and um and and, and i guess invent its cultures that um i could have my sort of protagonist go and do what he had to do
0: now in some of the copy from the book it's um Also described as a a book about identity, history, and the adhesive bandage industry. Um, Why band aids? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, I mean, the title "Apex Hides the Hurt" comes from uh, the protagonist's most famous famous product, Apex. It's a a multicultural band aid um, that comes in all colors, no matter what shade of skin you have. um, You can find the Apex that will um, will match it. So um and the slogan becomes very popular and the slogan um is Apex is Apex hides the hurt hence the name. Um I think early, I think even before I knew what the town was or what he was going to do I figured I was thinking about thinking about him and I, I knew he had to have he had to have some signature product and it's one of those things where I have no idea where where I thought of Apex or hides the hurt I I feel like it really um just came out of marketing ambient marketing uh, atmosphere. Uh, it's hard to miss uh, that
0: stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: and I definitely coming up with some of the names in the book and the way he talks about his job, I feel that, you know, we are surrounded by products and marketing t- to such an extent that I found it, um, I found it as a writer, it was really, really easy to sort of tap into that and sort of bring it into the book because we are so saturated with it.
0: Yeah. Now, um You've mentioned that, it, that you're sort of dealing with this consumerism or, or commercialism, consumer culture, um, and the advertising and, and that sort of thing. One of the big issues that's implied by what you just said about Band-Aids that um, match every skin color is that that race is central to um, the discussion and to the, the, the characters here. Um, is that sort of a byproduct of the of the your first interest in exploring this consumer culture, or were you coming at both of those kind of themes, if you will? I mean, a lot of people hate to talk about the themes, but but sure. <laughs> well, let's talk about themes because there are a lot of them in this book.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it all I mean, it, uh, those sort of things evolve over time. Um, I guess you know, from my point of view, I, I I write a lot about history, race, and technology, and popular culture. Um. So, as a black man, 2006, born in the shadow of the civil rights movement, um, race is one of like my lenses that I bring sort of to the table into my work. Uh, when I was a critic, I talked a lot about black imagery in the media, um, and uh, a lot of you know I, I find it hard to take a discussion about America and take race out of it. So it's it always ends up being a part of it. Um, sort of early on, the band aid thing and whatever sort of um, metaphorical resonance, or i guess parallel between the band aid and what kind of naming he 's doing in, in the town, ends up sort of creeping in over time i mean when I thought of the band aids um, i i you know, i didn 't initially think oh here 's here 's this grand metaphor that will dovetail with some other things i 'm thinking about it, it all sort of comes organically and and fits and starts and you 're writing and then some uh, an outline, because I always start with like, an outline before I start writing. And it's like, oh, that resonates with that, or the language I'm using to talk about names also fits his job uh, before he comes to town, and how can I make that stronger or maybe um, pull it back if it's, if it's not working
0: we're talking a little bit about process here, and you just mentioned that you, you start with an outline, and one of the things that we do on the show is, is often to talk about the writing process. We have a lot of folks who tune in who are writers, and um, one of the things they want to hear about is how, how people do it. Um, with this, when you set out to write a comic novel, which is very different from your first um, books, your um, use of metaphor, however, is sort of strong throughout your, your body of work. Um, do you? A lot of folks talk about starting just with an idea and then they write and the book kind of writes itself, you know, they kind of follow it where it goes. Um, you, you mentioned that you start with an outline. Do you um, follow that or does that just kind of, is that just a way to get a, away from the blank pap- paper and then go from there?
1: Well, I mean, I think, I mean, personally, I, when I go places, I like to know the destination. So I always work on the end, the ending and the beginning. The middle can be a little bit, little fuzzy because I, you know, what route I'm taking just to belabor this analogy. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, can always change, and as I do research or characters sort of assert their own voice, um, you know, the middle changes. But but I always have to know the ending um, before I start, and so I end up, you know, taking notes on characters and what happens and who meets whom and when uh, for about six months before I start writing, and that works for me. I mean, other people you know have their own way of doing things, but that works for me.
0: And do you have a particular sort of routine that you keep? Do you, are you one of those get up at five in the morning and, and write for a few hours, or yeah, will <laughs> stay up till five in the morning and write for a few hours. You know,
1: back in the day, I would um, I, I tend looking back, I tend to write for a year and then not write for a year. And when I'm writing, I well, I used to you know I'd, I'd do like eight hours, like maybe five five hours of writing, have dinner. Talk to, to, engage in human dialogue with other <laughs> living people, and then take notes at night for the next day's work, um, and re, you know revise at night or something something like that, um, and then I, and you know five four or five days a week, um, hope trying to get, I don't know ten pages a week. That's like sort of what I want. I try to do, um, and I always like admire people who you hear hear about stories of, of people who. They have three kids, and they would write from, like, 5.30 to 6.30 before the kids got up, and, and then they wrote this, like, Pulitzer Prize-winning thing, like, four years later. I can never do that. You know, I, I get up at 11, read my email, and start working. Um, and then recently, and if I had something to do in the afternoon, like, 2, 2 p.m., a, a 2 p.m. doctor's appointment or do some laundry, I'd be like, oh, I can't work today because if I have a flow, I'll be ruined <laughs> by this petty human interest um, but now, you know, I have a, a daughter who's like a year and a half old. And if I have two hours to work, I take it now. It's no, I, I, no, I no longer have the luxury of, you know, being the sort of hothouse flower. If I, you know, if she's napping, I'm like, okay, I'll try and get a few words out. So it's, it's very different. But, you know, I had to make it work.
0: Well, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. You're tuned in to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Colson Whitehead. We'll be right back. Good afternoon, we're back. You're tuned in to, to The Living Writers Show on WCVN fm Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Colson Whitehead, and um, our musical interludes today are covers of the song Seasons in the Sun. We started off with Pearls Before Swine doing their versions of Seasons in the Sun, and that was Etapas de Mi Vida, a.k.a. Seasons in the Sun, and that's the whole title, and that was um, Profugos de Chicago. And I pulled this theme because <laughs> um, Coulson has a blog and with a bunch of nice little titles Anadonia something or other and um, uh, Season We Had Joy, We Had Fun is another one and they, the titles of the blog entries don't necessarily have anything to do with what's going on in the blog and I've pulled them from some years back and so this one just stuck in my head
1: Yeah, um, you know, I my website and I just put up you know, reading information stuff like that, the books out etc. Um and I, whatever song I've been sort of humming in the shower, I put a lyric as the, the header. I'm not sure why, but that's what I do. So I guess I, I put in, season, we had f- joy, we had fun one time. I guess I was feeling bittersweet or something that day, and... uh There you
0: have it. Well, and it's also kind of a spring song because um, at some point I I haven't played it long enough on the show, but at some point in the in the song we get to talk about spring. So it seems to, but it is one of those lyrics that sticks in your head, which seems kind of appropriate for talking about a nomenclature consultant (laughs) naming of things. When I went to find, I was just going to pull one version of Seasons in the Sun for the show today, and it seems to be the most covered song ever. I found. rap versions i found um this cantina version i found um sort of Tex-Mex conjunto music kind of thing um i found alternative punk sort of stuff um the kingston trio i think may have done it first
1: I've, it transcends all culture
0: yeah i thought about playing the karaoke version and we could have sung it yes <laughs> but uh i'm not that slap happy today There'll be no singing. Well, we've been talking about your book, Apex Hides the Hurt, the most recent novel today. And um, I wonder if you'd read a little bit more for us. Um, let's see if I've, I've got a, another little bit pulled. How about... Here you go.
1: Okay. Um, the town is called Winthrop, and the, the descendant of the uh, industrialist who came to the town and renamed it after himself... Um, is Albie, and he's a strange character. And um, he likes the, the naming consultant who's come to town because they're both, they both went to Quincy, a uh, college in the northeast. He um, has very strong traditions, and he, you know, he feels that he's in good hands with a, a fellow Quincy man who will take care of him. So um, they're in a car after um, uh, Albie has shown off his decaying, empty mansion. His wife is taking all the stuff, and he's taking, taking the consultant back to the hotel. You know what it means to be a Quincy man, we're all brothers. It doesn't matter where you come from, once you walk into those ivy halls, you're in the brotherhood. Women too, now that that they let women in, they got it right. I tell you I go back to this and I can't help but say, golly, look at how it's all changed. You got all kinds of people from all over the world. Handicapped access so they can wheel up there, it's great. But even in my day there was a spirit, a community of like-minded people. Had a black fellow lived in my dorm. There are only five or six, but you have to understand the times. Good fella, quiet. Milton, I think that was his name. Lived downstairs, liked to swim, if I remember correctly. Wow. He had found in his life that it was always a good policy to flee when white people felt compelled to inform you about their black friend or black acquaintance or black person they saw in the street that morning. There were many reasons to flee, but in this case the pertinent one was that the reference was intended to signal growing um, camaraderie. He recognized landmarks on the road and realized they were almost back at the hotel.
0: Thanks very much. <clears throat> so, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, this—the kind of um, clubs that are implied in this discussion of naming things, and and the way the what's implied about the way the world works. And um, if we take this sort of as satire, and um, what are we satirizing?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I think. Uh, A bunch of stuff. We're talking about a bunch of stuff. When he comes to the town, um, he's had an accident, and he's been sort of placed himself in in self-exile from his his former job. Um, So when he he gets his gig, he's not sure if he can really perform the way he used to. Um, As he walks around town and meets the folks and does some research, he discovers that Winthrop was actually founded by former slaves in the 1880s. And they came and... um, Named their new home Freedom, you know, to represent their aspirations and what they hoped of their new sort of status. And then Winthrop comes with his factory and puts a stamp on the town, takes over, and it's renamed Winthrop. In the present, um, a hometown boy, um, made good, Lucky Aberdeen, has returned to town, and he's he's brought his computer firm back there, and he's trying to attract more business, and he thinks that the town needs a kind of zippy 21st century name. Um, and he's hired a, a consultant that w- thinks that it should be called New Prospera, some sort of new economy type of name. So as as the you know, protagonist meets these different sort of factions and people in the town, um, he, you know he, the notion of names starts to expand. You know there's there's the marketing name, the branding name, but there's also the truthful name, the historical name. Um, uh, he belongs to different clubs. He belongs to the contemporary uh, new capitalist club from his old sort of branding job. Um, by going to Quincy, he's part of this sort of Eastern elite establishment that Winthrop is a part of. Um, and he's also in the Black People Club. You know, the, de- the descendants of the freed slaves are in town and, uh, you know, still there. And they think that maybe the, the name should go back to the original name of Freedom. And so he's forced to negotiate these different sort of ideas of what truth is and and truth in naming.
0: Which leads us to what's in a name? Um, You know, if you've got you have one character here who goes who belongs to all these clubs. He's in the New Capitalist Club. He's in the Old School Boys Network
1: club, Club. and he's in
0: the Black People Club. And um, he gets to be in all those clubs. And if we change the name of the town, do we have a new club? That's you know, what what happens? Um, Do you believe in the power of branding?
1: Um, I think I think it's very powerful. I mean. I, I you know I, I think, uh, in, in terms of marketing, um, I think there's a certain kind of marketing genius I I admire. Uh, a, a, the uncle of a friend of mine came up with the phrase "plop plop fizz fizz," and I feel oh, like he, he, <laughs> I feel like he's he really sort of <laughs> cut into the culture, and now it's sort of indelible uh, in our brains. Um, and then I think. I think when you when you think of what it means to be American, that's a name. You know, Americo Vespucci sort of hit the jackpot in terms of getting something named after you. Um, He's so, got two continents. Yeah, I mean, you know. And a middle part. I mean, Bob Austra- Australia, you know, only had one. And, you know, <laughs> all, yeah, so. <laughs> Poor Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think when you name something, you're really, it's a. Uh, an act of asserting your own power and uh, then, in certain cases, an act of erasure. You're erasing what became came before. And, um, all, you know, a lot of places we live now had former Native American names, and where are they now? Um, they're Winthrop, Shadyville, you know, Mortville. Um, and that sort of... And that's thousands of years of history sort of erased. So.
0: And what happens... Um one of the things that that comes up in the book, um, you talk about different names um, over time. So the history, change, changing names. So let's take um, over time. You mentioned that you grew up in the sh- in the shadow of the civil rights movement and grew up in New York and and, and live in Brooklyn and are. Um, what happens in changing names with say ethnic? If we're talking about ethnic groups, so we've been. Um, colored is one of the the words that gets used in in Apex Sides the Hurt that has all kinds of attachments to it now. African American, black. um, What happens with the power of these names when they are given to rather than appropriated? So one of the characters in this book, um, Regina Good, who's a descendant of one of the founders of freedom, now Winthrop perhaps going to be New Prospera, um, she... These are received names. Her... um, Ancestors voted, sort of, to change the name to Winthrop, but in part um, they changed the name to Winthrop because um, that was the money. The, he was bringing in the industry, which was going to save the town, and same thing with Lucky. He's bringing in more industry. Um, what's the... How do you think about um, the process of naming when it's received versus adopted versus um, taken on as, your, as one's own?
1: Well, I mean... Um I, I I I think in the movement from colored to Negro to Afro-American to African-American, the people of color, I think each generation has to um, you know define itself, um, and and that's about deciding who you are and and what you're not going to stand for. Um, I think it was a big step when we were when you know my parents' generation was saying now we're Afro- Afro-American. I think that's the more the more appropriate name, and it's always going to change. I think you know, from gener- generation to generation, there's some sort of new sort of truth that we think we're, get, we're approaching if we um, uh, decide to call ourselves something different. Um, and that's sort of the process of the changing, you know, the, the, the changing nature of black identity, I think also American identity, and um, how differently we view ourselves from year to year. And, um And it's different when someone else is calling you something, whether it's colored or the N-word or something else. And it's different when you're saying, no, I'm, here I am, African-American. No, I'm a person of color. And I think that's sort of um, an an undeniable part of our sort of personalities.
0: And um, it gets at this interesting question of kind of marked and unmarked categories. Um, We were talking before and during the sound check I've never fessed up to this before but the the throwaway question I give guests when we're doing a sound check is what's your favorite box of crayons and uh, or tell me about your box of crayons and, and now we're actually going to talk about it on the air um the your box of crayons had um, one of those little sharpeners in it and we talked about the flesh colored crayon which
1: yeah and I mean and you know um, you know they stopped doing doing it cuz people were complaining you know what does flesh colored mean um, and I think, in fact, that, you know, that, that color act never actually matched anybody's idea of what, <laughs> oh, you know, no. sort of random Caucasian something or other. But, um, You've never, never seen
0: really a peachy colored person. Sure, sure. <laughs>
1: um, but, uh, but flesh, I mean, it, ha- it has, a, you know, such a sort of strong connotation. And at one point, marketers thought, well, we know what it is, and we think people know what uh, we're trying to say by flesh color, but, you know, it doesn't really end up meaning that much in the end.
0: Well, in the title of the book, "Apex Hides the Hurt," so this band aid that's flesh-colored and multi culti flesh—we we go, we range the spectrum of flesh tones in order. Viking to get to the, <laughs> albino, you know,
1: Ethiopian—you're you're all set. You're
0: all set, and there are little swatches you can match in the store to find the right band aid for your arm. Um, hides the hurt. Do you? What do you think about naming as a as a sort of um, veneer that hides what's really going on underneath it? Um, political economic, historical stuff are we covering things up with names or are we changing things with language
1: well, i mean you know um, in terms of you know pc language are we actually changing how people think or just sort of slapping a band-aid on you know, a certain kind of wound um and you know i can't answer that i mean if you listen to Right-wing radio. You probably get one answer, and if you, you know, listen to
0: WCBM, what answer do you yay. get? <laughs> um,
1: so, um, uh, and that's part of what I'm trying to explore. I mean, when he, when the marketer, when the naming consultant comes up with the perfect name to move a product, he's not answering, he's not addressing the essential quality of the product. Um, and what does that mean when you come to a town with, that has history and, and people actually live there? How do you address who they are as opposed to uh, what um, some people think is is best for them in the town? These ideas of what will erase historical wrong or erase um, the downtrodden present, um, do they work? Or are they just sort of temporary solutions?
0: Good question. I don't don't know. I just believe that is a pause. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone have the answer to that one? Call us up. (laughs) Well, it's the top of the hour, and we're going to take a short break. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Colson Whitehead. We're talking predominantly about his newest book, Apex Hides the Hurt. We'll be right back.
1: Goodbye to you, my trusted friend We've known each other since we were nine or ten Together we climbed hills and trees Learned of love and ABCs Skinned our hearts and skinned our knees Goodbye, my friend, it's hard to
0: die when all the birds are singing in the sky, now that it's And if you're just joining us, we're doing a little Seasons in the Sun musical interlude um, theme today for no particularly good reasons, but that was Nana Muscori's version of Seasons in the Sun, La Moribund, she calls it.
1: <laughs> very, very good. Very good. I'm actually too depressed to go on with the interview after hearing that.
0: Yeah, we're just gonna have to. Well, there's a punk rock version coming at the That's very right. close of the show, so we'll amp people back up before we, before the sports report comes on, which is what follows the Living Writers Show. And if you are just tuning in, you're listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name's Ashley David, and my guest is Colson Whitehead. We're talking about Apex Hides the Hurt. Um, we're getting at commercialism and the power of naming and um, race and history and identity and all kinds of good stuff. Let's talk about binaries. <laughs> we'll just sure, yeah. Add that to the treasure trove of things to discuss today. And I did promise listeners we talk about beetles, snakes, and um, planes um, as well. But uh, beetles, just because your blog site said um, we're three and we're on the road. But we're not the Beatles.
1: That is from a Run DMC song, which is a, a beautiful non sequitur. Uh, I'm writing something about the '80s. I've been listening to you know some of the old early hip hop, and um, is it King of Rock? But anyway, they say uh, there's three of us, but we're not the Beatles. And I have no idea what that <laughs> what that means. I mean, are they talking about the the, the moment between Peter Best and Ringo Starr, or like? Um, yeah, why three? I thought there yeah, were four. Maybe, I guess it's written after John Lennon died, but you wouldn't really they weren't the Beatles in the mid '80s. So it was just one of those beautiful non sequiturs, which pop up pretty frequently in hip hop, and I admire them for just going out there and doing it.
0: Just doing that. Well, that's great. I'm glad. I'm glad I asked you that because I I really did want to know who 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 were the three Beatles, <laughs> and where did that come from? And then the other thing is um, snakes on a plane.
1: Snakes on a plane. Um, you know, I tend to. Uh, uh, Hang out, hang out on the Internet a lot. I work at home, so, you know, a little pause. Um, so there's a, a movie coming out. Um, at this point, it's actually reached, reached, like, media saturation point. But there's a movie coming out called Snakes on a Plane. And immediately when it was sort of announced, people uh, were like, that's the best title. Um, briefly, they changed it, but then there was sort of, like, an Internet outcri- um, outcry against it. So now it's Snakes on a Plane. And, and Samuel Jackson plays, like, an FBI guy who's um, – uh, taking a, a, pr- a prisoner on a plane, and in order to assassinate the prisoner, I guess the villains unleash... Asps. <laughs> uh, yes, asps and assorted, you know, king cobras in the cargo hold, and there's snakes on a plane. Um, and I, you know, I was one, one of these people who, I, you know, I re- watched a lot of B-movies, and they seem to have just really sort of hit something. In the way that plop, 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 fizz, fizz really sort of hits the psyche, I think snakes on a plane as a concept is something... Um, Really quite special. So periodically I've had Snakes on a Plane updates. Um, I, that's one sort of preoccupation of the website. And the other is the um, Valerie Plane um, CIA leak investigation. So periodically i like to just say, have we indicted any MFers yet? Um, uh, co-conspirators Co-conspirators. And, and, you know, slowly I think we're going to have some more people indicted, on it, I'm hoping at least. And, and we're also approaching the release of Snakes on a Plane this summer, August so, call Fandango and get your tickets now.
0: <laughs> now that's a clever ad campaign. The little um, puppets made of
1: who doesn't like puppets? Who doesn't know? like puppets made yeah. of
0: made made of black? Uh, not black, what are they called? Um, those uh, lunch 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 bags. Yeah. 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 Well, I did that. And I'm trying. Y'all can't see this over the air, but I'm trying to to demonstrate this. So my voice won't make the words happen. Those puppets I made when I was a kid. Well, Loved I, was really, them.
1: I really suck with because they uh Day, I guess they really liked to have like a book about marketing and they actually made as for a promo some band aid holders that say Apex hides the hurt. Um
0: Point of Purchase
1: <laughs> Yes <laughs> <this point. laughs> Yes, exactly. So they sent them out to you know reviewers and whatnot a few months ago and I was just very excited to, you know, have a band aid holder with my book's name on it. So
0: Congratulations! Thank you. Yeah, you know, it, it
1: took 36 <laughs> years, but now yeah, you got the Band-Aid
0: holder, yeah. your names on it. That that's fabulous. Okay, so back to binaries. Then um, the the founders of this town um, that's to be named, renamed uh, by the nomenclature consultant, are um, two freed black men, ex-slaves, who come to the Midwest and found the town. Um, they're named Good and Field, and they are nicknamed the Light and the Dark. Um, and race is often discussed in this country in terms of black and white. Um, this Band-Aid is a multi-culti Band-Aid, you, it, whether it's, you, you mentioned Viking, Ethiopia, um, any number of, other, you've got all the shades for the for the Band-Aid, but largely the way race is discussed in the book and the way it's experienced in this country is as a binary, it's black and white. Um, why do you think that is This at this point in our history?
1: Um.
0: And, and and granted, you live in New York, which is where things are, are fairly different from the right. rest of the country, but um imagine imagine the rest of it.
1: I am gonna have to say uh I don't know. Don't know. I don't know.
0: I don't know either. <laughs> I was hoping you I was hoping you could I ask I asked that question of a lot of people. I have a few
1: corners of wisdom, but uh that's not really tapping into any of any of them. I think um uh you know, I'm when
0: we talk about even um, we don't talk about class too much in this country, we talk about race, if, if we talk about anything. And when we talk about class, it's the Horatio Alger story. Let's pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And if you haven't succeeded, it's because you didn't know how to name a bandaid um, or you didn't work hard enough. Um, so but. But of, And so often race and class get sort of squished together and, and um, thought about as one um, rather than picked apart and figured out in terms of power and, and all kinds of things.
1: Well, I, I guess for my part, you know, looking back at this book and also The Intuitionist, which has uh, you know, two warring philosophies of it's about elevator inspectors and there are two philosophies of ele- ele- elevator inspection, the empiricists and the intuitionists, um, the empiricists doing it the right way, looking for wear and tear and the intuitionist who can just sort of step into an elevator and sort of divine what's wrong and in in that book I was able to use um, uh, these two warring groups to talk about Democrats and Republicans or rationalism versus spirituality Um, uh, talk about transcendence um, and sort of earthbound uh, folly Um, and so you know just as an artist that you know I I find juxtaposition uh, really useful as a tool. You know, the structure of this book takes place in the present um, and then flashes back to his past in the the city before he has his injury. And I I find going sort of back and forth makes a nice sort of tension. And I think definitely when you have these sort of stark extremes, um, you know, for me, whether it's black and white or um, Democrat, Republican, uh, conservative, progressive, i i i i find its it's very, very sort of useful for you know the kind of creative work i do um they work up, they you know they define each other they work, work off each other um,
0: do you think there's a a danger or um do you find yourself coming up against the problem of um of complication by by sort of drawing the line between one Well,
1: the i other? mean and then also I, and i end up also sort of falling in the sort of you know realm of of Ambiguous a lot of the time, because there is no sort of clear- cut um answer to these things there's no one philosophy um oh that is perfect um so a lot of my sort of my characters end uh sort of trying to figure out these two extremes and end up finding some sort of third third way to go um and and because life, life isn't you know black or white it's you know it's th- there' are various shades and um and that's the sort of place where most of us live.
0: As a as experience, but not in, rhetor- in sort of rhetorical terms, we we, we tend to uh, really in this country it seems to me we really gravitate toward an answer. Um, I tell my students when we're working on writing, let's court some ambiguity, and they're like, "But what's right? What's the what? right answer? Yeah. Um, what's good? What's evil? Can we can we put one into one camp and one into another? Um, the world isn't that clear cut, but certain folks certainly do. Um, want a concrete kind of answer, in my experience, I find. Do you think there's any danger in in using that tool of of setting up juxtapositions? Um, Any danger in, um, instead of creating a complicated mess that people can kind of mess around in, in giving people kind of an easy out? Well,
1: I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the sort of metaphorical work I do is pretty open. You know, I think you can walk away from Apex or The Intuitionist And have your own own interpretation of what sort of goes on. And I kind of like that um, sort of openness. Um, There are times when I'll read reviews or do a reading and I'll get asked a question. um, And in reviews, read somebody's interpretation of of one of my books. And it's not something I thought of particularly. I mean, it's in there maybe a a tiny bit and they sort of inflate its importance. Um, But, you know, I but that's. Part of, part of what I want I mean I think once you're done it's out in the world and other, people can do what they want and I feel like the the way I sort of use metaphor or the way I talk about certain concepts they are open enough that people can sort of step in and have their own, own interpretation um, and I guess it can be you know, very elaborate or very simplistic depending you know, on how you react to what I'm doing
0: when you're so this book is now out um, I, I read all the blogs about blog entries <clears throat> when it was about to be out, and sort of that's where I got all the seasons in the sun stuff. Um, but uh, it's out now. It, how do you feel about your books once they're they're out in the world? Can you let them go and they're they're on there? I mean, obviously you have to be out promoting them. You're on a book tour now. You're you're doing coast to coast. Apex hides the hurt 24/7 for a while.
1: Well, in general, um, I'm working on something new by time comes out. So the book coming coming out is a sort of interruption <laughs> to working, and I have to take six weeks off and you know get into in reread the book and sort of remember, like, what I did and and learn learn to talk about it because it's one thing to write it and it's different to another different thing to find a way to talk about it.
0: Do um, you enjoy talking about it or is, that, is it hard? Would you rather just be at home doing your thing? Well, I mean, it
1: gets uh, – you sort of uh, learn to do it and um, – and and then it's over. Like you sort of like like your best interview is probably like your last one when you sort of have really articulated, you know, finally figure out how to articulate what you're trying to say in the book, um, but verbally. And then it's like, okay, now you're back home to New York, and it's like, oh, now I finally got it, and it's over. I had to talk about John Henry days for another for somebody who's doing something about John Henry last week, and I was like, what was that book about? Like, so <laughs> it was so long ago, um, and people ask me about it like that chapter. I'm like, what? Did I write that? So, you know, I, I tend to move on pretty quickly. And then but when it does come out, uh, you know, I, I reread it. And I'm like, ah, there's yeah, some good sentences in there. And I'm really psyched. And with this book, this is the first time that I opened it up. And I was like, ah, I wouldn't really wish, I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't, you know, move any words around. And, I, I mean, I'm really glad with how it turned out. And, uh, you know, I started a long time ago. And I put it down to work on The Colossus of New York after 9-11 because I felt like, oh, fiction was, you know, somehow useless and i should write about new york and try to process 9-11 so even though it's fairly short it was like a six years from beginning to end and um so I, i'm really glad it's out i lived it for a long time i didn't realize what a relief it was to actually see it in bookstores and not sort of uh,
0: and to get your band-aid holder
1: i get my band-aid holder and, and live the dream finally <laughs> yeah. Of having a band aid holder.
0: Yeah, here we are living the dream. Um, well, next tonight you are reading at the Shaman Drum Bookstore at seven p.m. I yeah, believe it is.
1: Should be a high old time.
0: On State Street, so y'all come on out. Will we have any band aid holders there on display? Point uh, of I'm purchase? hoarding them.
1: I'm hoarding them <laughs> for a, a bad day or particularly you know unfortunate. <laughs>
0: Sell them on eBay at some yeah. point. Uh, make look for Save them for a rainy day. So um, Colson Whitehead will be at the um, Shaman Drum Bookstore reading from Apex Hides the Hurt tonight at 7 o'clock. That's on State Street. And uh, you're off to the West Coast after this?
1: Yeah, tomorrow I'm going to San Francisco for two days. going to read it there and then Oakland. And then there's a big book festival in Portland. So some folks milling about, and that should be fun.
0: And then back to the desk and, yeah. and the blog. <laughs>
1: sure.
0: Back to some web surfing. Well, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot. It was fun. Real pleasure. And I'd like to thank our engineer, Chaz Barrett, for doing his usual wonderful job. Next week, poet Robert Hirshan will be on the show. The archives for The Living Writers Show are now available at www.wcbn.org slash livingwriters. Stay tuned to WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David. You've been listening to The Living Writer's Show. The Sports Report is next. Goodbye, Emil, my trusted friend. We've known each other since we were nine or ten. Together we've done those and trees. We learned of love in ABCs. Skin our hearts and skin our knees. Can buy a it's hard to die. When all the birds are singing in the sky, and the spring is in the air. little girls are everywhere. Come of me and I'll be there. And so Piper Pop, you for me. I was a black sheep of the family. You tried to show me right from wrong. Too much wine and too much song. Wonder how I got along. Piper like, Pop, it's hard to die. When all the birds are singing in the sky. I just bring this in here. The little girls are everywhere. I wish we could both be there. We are joy, we are fun, we are season. I'm all right. Nobody but about me. got to give me a Can't just let it be? Golf's no different from hockey. It requires talent, self-discipline.
1: it in. Give it a little tappy. Tap, tap, tap the room.
0: Former Grange Keeper now about to become the Masters Champion.
1: Listen mm. up!
0: You're listening to the Daily Sports Report.
1: Talk about a hole and one. Yo, yo,